You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, bluffing, part two, three bet bluffing, pre-flop. Hey Dell, how's it going this week? It's it's been an interesting week. My wife's been sick all week. I've been sick. We're dealing with the whole trying to keep the people around us safe and trying to get through it ourselves. So I've still managed to put in some volume. Whether I should have or not could be argued. You know, I wasn't really feeling the best, wow. but uh, I try to take and meet my commitments there. So yeah, we're doing all right. We're starting to feel a little better and hopefully we'll be back to normal soon. How are you doing? Well, I'm glad to hear that you're on the mend. That's good news. I'm doing pretty well. I have to admit, this week was a roller coaster at my local casino. I played Tuesday. I didn't run hot. I just kind of played well. The fish were in rare form. They were just throwing chips my way, so I was a benefactor of that. Then Friday and Saturday were complete dumpster fires, and it was frankly hilarious. It wasn't funny in the moment. Saturday, I got tilted. I was angry. I decided to just pick up and leave. I didn't lose all my money. I still had chips. I decided the best course of action because I couldn't just go for a walk and calm myself down. I tried. It failed. I decided to go home. It was, it was completely crazy. The best hand I had Friday and Saturday, both sessions, I never had a straight. I never had a flush. Every time I played suited connectors like Ace King of Hearts, the flop would come Jack, Seven, Six, Two Clubs, and a Spade. Or I'm playing Queen, Jack of Clubs, and the flop comes five, six of diamonds, and a three of hearts. Like, nothing ever matched. The only time I did better, I flopped a set. Felt pretty good about myself. We got stacks in, the board was pretty dry, he flopped a bigger set. That was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I picked up, I went home, I was done. And then on the way home, I realized something. Despite having two completely frigid, cold sessions, I didn't even lose one buy-in. I think that mental resiliency of just picking up, going home, licking my wounds, they weren't that deep. But the fact that I ran so cold and didn't even lose a buy-in, you know when I run hot, I'm going to win more than one buy-in. So I am not deterred, and I still think 2022 is going to be an amazing year for both of us. Yeah, I do too. I have a couple questions. Uh, my first one is, how many hands do you think you played over those two sessions? I knew you were going to ask me that because you put in so much more volume online than I do. Let's see. I probably played 10 hours on those two sessions. So if, about 300 hands. About 300 hands. I probably played maybe 15% of them. So let's say I played 45 hands. I honestly probably took down 20 of them either pre-flop or on the flop. We went to the turn of the river probably only 20 or 25 times. Right. But you can expect to hit the flop about how often would your range? About one third of the time I'll connect with the flop. So you played about 25% of the hands, you said. Actually, probably probably less than that. I probably got, I probably played 25 hands to the turn and river. Yeah. But what I, I, I guess what my point is, is it's, it's interesting to think in, in it's a, it's a, a lot of how we do things, like when we tend to tell ourselves that the norm is when we get a hand and we hit the flop, we get a hand, we hit the flop, and we tend to tell ourselves that that's the norm and that when it doesn't happen, we're not, we're, we're running cold. Like, you know, I mean, you described it as running frigid, right? Yeah. And I think that 
from my perspective, I don't think you ran all that frigid. I think that what you did was you had a normal level of variance over a short sample size. And I think that the best way to deal with that, I think one of the things you did is correct. If you were on tilt, one of the best ways to deal with it is get up and leave. It's time to go. You're on tilt. And what's going to happen, you're going to end up losing many buy-ins instead of partial buy-ins. So I thought that, I think that's like really good that you did that. But I think another thing to think about when, when that's going on is to remind yourself, we're only supposed to get a pair every 16 hand. We're only supposed to get aces once in every 216 hands or 200. I, I'm probably wrong with that number. But uh, if I am, forgive me, people. I'm, I'm not at 100% this week. But the point is, is over 300 hands, you really can only expect to get a pair of aces like once on average. One, one and a half times. Oh, yeah. I did get aces. I did get aces yeah. and they got cracked. But you right. know, that happens. Again, right. it happens. But I mean, I think, the, I think the big point is our entire life is just one big poker session punctuated by periods of not playing poker, eating, sleeping, working, whatever. It's not really that significant. I think on the drive home, I was able to put it in perspective and realize it's not really that big of a deal. No one got hurt. No one died. I didn't even lose a buy-in. This is why I have a poker budget or a bankroll to withstand this type of stuff. Not that big of a deal. Life goes on. Awesome. I, I, I'm glad. I, I'm really yeah. I'm really happy with the way that you handled it. Not that I have anything to do with it, but it, it's happy to hear my friend handle it that well. <laughs> oh, no. Actually, you did so. have something to do with it. I'm, I'm going to throw this out there before we get to our podcast. But a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode that was predicated on me losing a hand at 2-5 for the tune of like $1,100. And I was emotionally attached to the hand. Since then, I have changed my 30-minute check-in where I text myself every 30 minutes instead of texting myself about game dynamics and three betting and strategic aggression like I usually do I actually change those reminders to be in line with what you suggested am I playing against this person because I think they're weak am I trying to hammer someone into submission I started asking myself questions about am I trying to hulk smash my opponents under the pretense of solid fundamentals but really it's because I just want to hulk smash them so no, I actually do have to owe you some thanks to that because you did help there. So on that note, talking about thanks, before we get to our episode, I wanted to talk about something that our friend is doing. I have a very close friend, Jonathan Beville, who does our intro and outro. A couple of people have asked me who does it, so I want to give him a shout out. Jonathan, other than doing this fabulous podcast, is the narrator of many books, including the Prometheus Award-nominated and best-selling novel, Titan by Robert Cruzy, out now, and the paranormal thriller The Puller by Michael Hodges, coming out on February 28th. Check those books out and more on Audible, and we'll provide a description in the show notes for this podcast, as well as on our homepage and on YouTube. So with that, let's go ahead and talk about the actual podcast episode, 3-Bet Pre-Bluffing, a continuation in our four-part series on bluffing. Yeah, this is interesting to me because I have to take in question the way I look at it. It's not that I have to question. I have to be open to the way other people are going to look at this. Because from my perspective, I don't three-bet bluff. I still think of it the same way I think of my opening range pre-flop. I think of when, I, when I'm betting with three-bet pulled range, I'm still thinking that I'm betting with the bottom of that range to protect the value of the top part of that range to ensure that I get calls sometimes when I three-bet. And of course, the top of my range helps protect the bottom of that range. 
And if I'm doing it with a merged range, which I don't do very often, but when I do it, it's because stacks are deeper and I, I feel there are certain hands that I can add in there that are going to have a lot of post-flop playability when I get called. So I don't really think of it as bluffing, but I know other people are going to think of it as bluffing. And from that perspective, we have to be able, we cannot just three bet with queens plus and ace king and expect to get paid off when we do it. It amazes me that at the stakes I play, people don't even open raise with queens, kings, and ace king. This week, I saw so many people limping with kings and queens and ace king. And yeah, we should be three betting those. We don't want to just three bet top of range because it's so easy to exploit. If you know someone is three betting top of range, you just fold. There was a guy that I was playing with this weekend who never opened a single pot ever. He limp called everything. One time, about three hours into my session, I opened and he three bet me. I Hollywooded for a second and then folded. I didn't want to snap fold. And I said, your aces are good, sir. And of course, he flopped over aces because he had to show them because that's what you have to do, right? But yeah, I mean, we do want a three bet because we want to maximize value. I don't really think a lot of people understand how three bet strategies play into maximizing value. I think that most people are three betting for the purpose of getting a fold. And I think there's merit to that. When you have somebody who's opening 40% of the time, you know that you know, you're know you looking at a lot of folds that they have in their range, that a lot of hands that aren't going to be able to handle three bets. Or if the player makes the mistake of calling a three bet with those hands going to the flop, they're going to be, their range is going to be too unwieldy to carry forward. There's going to be too many hands that they have to pair off on the flop or, or the turn. And in today's game, a lot of players will carry to the turn with bad hands. And they do that because they've read a book or th there's been several books out there that says, you know, if you should be carrying 70% of your range forward. The problem with that is if your range is too large pre-flop and you carry 70% of your range forward on, on, on the flop, your range is still too large. And eventually you have to do something with them hands. You know, you either have to bluff with them or fold with them, or you end up calling down with too weak of a hand and losing a lot of money. When we're looking at that, there's some merit to say somebody's betting, opening too much pre-flop, and we're going to three-bet them as a bluff. But this is still not one of those things you can say, I'm going to do it with any hand. Because one of the things that needs to be understood is that you're going to get called a lot. So that hand has to be playable. Not only that, but we don't want them to fold their whole range. We want them to carry on with some bad hands. We want to be able to protect the value of our range, the high-value hands in our range pre-flop with some pulled thinking. Now, is this always necessary? I need to add this. This is, like, very important. Like, if you're playing 1-2, at most 1-2 tables, most 1-3 tables, you're not going to need to play a pulled range. You're going to be able to play a linear range and probably be able to do quite well three betting linearly with queens plus, ace, king. And as you get onto the button, maybe you can throw in tens and jacks, ace, queen, ace, jack suited. And, and you can probably do really well three betting that range at one, two, and one, three. When you get up to two, five, you're going to have to start thinking against some players about pulling your range a little bit. So, what does that mean? It means I, I want to throw in some hands that are 
I don't want to call them weak because, like I said, to me, it's not bluffing. They all, the hands I throw in my three-bet range are going to have a purpose. They're there so that I put them in that range so I know that I am maximizing my EV against a given player going forward. And stack size plays a lot into it. And, and the thing is, you brought that up when we were figuring out the notes for this show, and I had missed that completely. And, and it's one of the more most important things, because what am I going to three bet with if stacks are really low? Like, like if everybody's 50 big blinds, I don't really have a lot of bluffing room. So everything in my range is going to be very strong. It's going to be very linear. And I'm just going to have to hope they call. But when they call, it's we're going to be playing for stacks. It's already there, you know. But at 300 big blinds, there's a whole different game being played. So at that game, there's more room for bluffing or, in my way of thinking, more room to add in these hands that have a high post-flop playability that maximizes my long-term EV. I think long-term EV is really what we want to get at when we're three-betting. And the name of this podcast is almost a misnomer, three-bet, pre-flop, bluffing. What we're trying to encourage people to do is expand your three-bet range to not just be top of range, but also include bottom of range, middle of range, whatever makes sense for your game dynamics. The reason that you'd want a three-bet in one part is really to build a pot. Look, if I have aces, kings, queens, jacks, tens, maybe even nines, depending on the player profiles or, or stack sizes, I have an equity advantage. I want to push that advantage through the streets of the hand. Now, I have a pair with aces or kings. It might not be worth three streets of value. I might get two. I might get one. What would I rather have? Would I rather have one street of value in a three-bet pot or one street of value in an open first-in pot? The three-bet pot, because I want to get more money. If I'm going to realize the equity of my monster hands, why not realize more value with that equity? Get a bigger pot. Get more money. That's why they're premium hands. But you also want to, like, like Dell said, we also want to protect the high part of our range with the low part of our range. So we could throw in ace-5 to ace-2 suited. You could throw in 7-6 suited up to whatever, if that makes sense, if you're doing more of a merged strategy. The thing with three betting is we want to get more value. It almost doesn't even matter the absolute strength of our hand because we're playing a range. And if our opponents are accustomed to thinking that people only ever three bet aces, kings, and queens, then even if we three bet eight, seven suited and the flop comes in a board that would favor our range, like ace, six, deuce, rainbow, we can take the pot down right there. Because they're going to be afraid that we have the ace because everyone three bets with aces. It almost factors in player profiling and understanding the population tendencies of your field when you three bet wider than the typical person because you know they're thinking a three bet means kings plus. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that just stood out to me with what you were saying. And, and the first one is getting more money in the pot. And you're right, we do better when. We get more money in the pot with a plan of winning the hand. I, I need to stress that part. It's like, don't be just betting any hand thinking, I've got to get more money in the pot when you don't have a plan of how to win with that specific hand within your range. <laughs> so, but one of the reasons we want to get more money in the pot when we have the opportunity to is at lower stakes, the percentage of pot 
that goes to rake is so high that in order to beat the game, we, like a lot of these places, like the places I play at, they'll cap the take from the pot at $5. And then they might take another $2 for promotions. Well, we want to get above that cap as quickly as we can. You know, they're going to take 10% up to $5. Well, I want to get above that point where they're no longer taking any more extra money from the pot. But I don't want to do that foolishly. You know, I want to get up there with equity. I want to get up there with plus EV lines. Another consideration with three bet pots and four bet pots, if they happen, players don't really understand the compression of the ranges that happen in those pots. If I'm three betting and I'm not just three betting Kings Plus, I'm betting a much wider range, what's my opponent calling with? If my opponent three bets, they're probably likely three betting with Kings Plus, Ace King, maybe, depending if they're a thinking player or not. What am I calling with? Am I going to have the connectivity, the suitedness, the stack sizes? You know, is, is it worth set money? You could very well set mine. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing again. If you're playing deep enough and you use the whole 15x, 25x, 35x heuristic we talked about a few episodes ago, if you're playing 200 bigs and someone three bets you, and what that means is you now need to call an additional $30 in order to set mine, but they have $500 behind, and so do you, it's still worth it. You still need to factor the math in. You can't just throw those heuristics out the window. They still apply. So you might still even call a three bet wide or wider than you normally would. But a lot of players don't understand how ranges compress or condense in three bet pots. And that makes playing post flop trickier because we need to make sure we have a lot of playability post flop. Yeah, I I I wanna I wanna really focus on that compression part of it because because I think that this is something that a lot of people miss. Okay. And I think that it's more than if our opponent bets and we call. If we three bet and our opponent calls, the majority of the players are telling us something about their range. What they're telling us about their range is that it is condensed and it is capped. And uh, first time I heard that that whole notion, I heard it from Alex Fitzgerald. So I want to make sure that I give him the credit for that. It's not my own thinking. But they're telling us that the range is capped and it's condensed. And what that means is, all right, it's capped. They don't have kings or aces, probably. They probably don't even have queens, most players. Now, I do know there's the occasional time that player shows up with aces and, and makes you feel like the whole thing doesn't count. But it still counts because the player that limps aces doesn't normally limp king. They, there's, there's holes in that whole philosophy. And where it's compressed is this. Now, we also know they're probably not calling with deuces. They're probably not calling with a lot of those smaller suited connectors. They're probably not calling with their bad hands that they might sometimes like to open with. So their range is no longer as large. So where you said it's trickier to play post-flop, yes, it can be, because you have to remember certain things going post-flop. You have to have playability within your range that certainly is far and above what your opponent is going to have. But here's the thing. It makes it simpler in a lot of ways because we know certain things aren't in their range anymore. It becomes much easier to range your opponent when you three bet. If somebody's opening 40% of hands, 
and you call behind, they still have the same 40% of hands. But if you three bet them and they call, do they still have the same 40% of hands? No, no. That that 40% is going to get condensed. What is it going to get condensed to? That's going to be where player profiling comes in. That's where it's going to be like with this particular player, if they limped it, they're calling. If they open, they're calling. And their range doesn't change that much, except that you know that they probably are still going to be three betting queens plus. So they may only lose a little off the range. But with another player, it might be, ah, they called here. The only way they're calling me here is if they got ace king and nine through jacks, nines through jack. So each player, you're going to have to be able to determine that yourself. But three betting does go so far in helping us range a player. It's a very valuable tool for that. And this is one of the reasons that people are afraid to do it. The biggest reason people don't three bet, I mean, there's a lot of knowledge that's lacking, but the biggest reason people don't three bet is fear. It's fear that they might get four bet and half the fold. And that's why they only do it with premium hands. Well, what what's it hurt if you have to fold a hand once in a while? Nope. Very few people are three betting. So you really think that a lot of people are going to be four betting? And when they four bet, do you really think that it's not going to be top of range? And this is one of the reasons why it works so well to take and pull your range some, because sometimes somebody's going to four bet you and you're going to fold and their thought process is going to be, oh, they're bluffing all the time, but you're not. And that's going to get more calls and more four bets against your premium hands. So when do we merge? And when do we go linear? You had mentioned when stacks are low, it kind of makes sense to three bet with a linear range because if you only have 50 big blinds in play, you're going to get stacks in. The SPR is going to get low ridiculously quickly. So if we three bet against a short stack opponent, we're going to put ourselves into pretty much a plan for stack scenario. Right. Yeah. We don't need to go merge when we're we're short stacked. We don't need to go merge when we're playing bad players. And you're not going to need to go merged a lot at 2-5 or 1-2 or 1-3. Are, are there going to be times when you want to? Uh, I guess, like, like well, you play 2-5 and sometimes you play 2-5 against Dan. And we've talked about Dan uh, uh, many times before. And, and Dan's been on our show. And Dan is a very good player at 2-5. You're going to benefit using a merge range against him because, first of all, he plays deep stack. You play deep stack. And if you know you're, you have, have an opportunity to get heads up against him, playing against him with a merged range is going to help you out because it's going to be very hard for him to range you going forward when you use that merged range. But you're not going to come a lot of, across a lot of dance in the world. There's just not that many of them. You're not going to need to use a pulled range very often at low stakes. And I think this is one of the things that gets a lot of people in trouble is, do we do we want you to take and open up your three-bet range? I, I personally know I don't want you to. Um, I might have to play against you. But if you want to play better, you might want to open it up a little bit. But opening it up a little bit doesn't mean going away from a linear range. Before you get to that point of being in a pulled range, you can go linear quite a bit before you ever have to worry about going pulled in at your low stakes games against bad players you don't really need to go pulled because they're going to call you too much you can open up your range but you can still keep it a mostly high value range queens plus can become 
tens plus, or if you're you know on the button, maybe nines plus. Ace king becomes, like I said before, it becomes ace queen, ace jack suited against a particularly loose player. Maybe you could even go ace ten. You can still open that range and stay very linear in your three bet range against bad players. You don't need to go with pulled or merged ranges. Those are things that you should know about. You should learn about them. You should make them a part of your game for when game dynamics call for it. I completely agree with everything you said there, Dell. I mean, that's a really good encapsulation of pulled linear merge ranges. I'll say why the I play a merge range. I'm not going to divulge my entire strategy, but if you're playing against players who don't adjust and don't think about ranges, you're probably fine being linear because they're going to fold post-flop more often than they should, and you can earn value. You can over-realize the equity of your holdings by them over-folding, and that's fine. The problem is, for thinking players, if you only play queens plus and ace-king, for the most part, you have top pair. Top pair almost never improves beyond top pair. Most boards are going to come out in a way where you still have top pair or an overpair. Still, if you have top pair or an overpair, there will almost never be scenarios where you can get a straight or a flush. You either have an overpair or maybe you have a set. And come on, sets are hard to come by. I think everyone can understand sets are hard to come by. You typically only get them one out of 11 times. If you play a merge range, you have some more flexibility. You have some more post-flop playability. Now you can make straights. Now you can make flushes. Now the board can come middle in cards. And if your opponent isn't thinking about it, you can trap them. They won't even see it coming because they're going to assume you three bet queens plus ace king suited. And now the board is 10, 9, 9, and you happen to have 10, 9. Perfect. You flopped the boat. They're not going to see it coming. So I think, again, this comes into player profiling. This comes into understanding the population tendencies of your games, understanding that we're thinking about ranges, but our opponents are likely not thinking about ranges. And if we attack players who are opening too much and we're three betting them more often, Yes, their ranges will be condensed and capped, but even they probably won't realize that we have these merged holdings in our range because they're not thinking about ranges. Yeah. So I, I think that all of that is very true. And, and I think that a lot of it really is going to have to boil down to what you're comfortable playing. We need to stretch our, our comfort zone, you know, and I think that's a start in the process of, of developing, you know, a, a more cohesive, Three bet strategy, a more a more well defined, well developed three bet strategy moving forward. But I think that again, I think that uh, it's important to understand. Like BJ is talking about playing a merge range, but BJ is always playing in games that are about two hundred big blinds deep. If you find yourself at a table where everybody's bought in for you know sixty to eighty big blinds or a hundred big blinds or less. You don't necessarily want to go with that merge range. I want to really caution people with that. I think that it's all stuff that we need to learn about. And in the end, the bluffing part of this, yeah, sure. If somebody opens and you three bet with ace five suited, is it a bluff? Yeah, technically, yes. But I, I'd really rather people started thinking 
I would really rather our listeners, I don't want everybody to think this way, but I'd really rather our listeners start to think in the, in the terms of this is part of my three bet range and it's part of my three bet range because of this, whatever the reason may be. And the reason's got to be a good reason. It, it can't be just, hey, I like I like nine six off. No, it can't be that. It has to be, there's a reason. It, it provides value. Like one of the things that Emerge Range does that BJ was talking about is it provides board coverage. But do you need board coverage in every game? No, no, you don't. And, you know, like I always talk about a pole range providing protection, but do you need that protection in every game? No, no, you don't. There's going to be times when just a good solid linear range is going to be fine. So if you three bet with ace jack suited, is this a bluff? Well, you don't have a hand yet, but you may be ahead of your opponent's range. I don't know what I'd really call it a bluff. And you have a lot of playability post-flop with this hand. So I'd rather than people think when they're pre-flop thinking about bluffing, I'd rather them think more along the lines of this is my range that I three bet with and I three bet with this range because of this and adjust it from the players in front of us. If somebody opens up only 5% of the time, do I really want to take in three bet them with anything other than top of range? The answer is no. So there's no real blanket statements here. There isn't really any, uh, I use this range all the time, no matter what. We need to adjust to the players and the table dynamics every single game. They're going to be different every game. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. I want to talk about some tools that we have to address this because you brought up an amazing point about fear and uncomfortability. And honestly, we need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable. That's pretty much what it is. And the way that we can develop a level of comfort with that uncomfortability is through off-table practice. If we work these things off-table and we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, then when we're on the table, we're not going to get surprised. We're not going to spaz. We're not going to freak out and lose chips. We can practice developing three-bet ranges off-table so that we get to a point where our pre-flop decisions are almost entirely defaulted. I don't want to say automatic. We're not on autopilot. But we know in situation A, B, and C, I'm going to take actions one, two, or three, depending on whatever. It can be as complicated as you need to be. I'd prefer to keep it simple. The fact is three betting can be scary. And to address that fear, let's work off table on developing our three bet skills. So when we're on the table, we're not paralyzed by that fear and we can pull the trigger and make these actions. Now, when should we three bet? Maybe when you're playing a hand, think about the most aggressive action first, because we know aggressive poker is winning poker. It needs to be well-placed aggression. It just can't be blatant whacking around with a hammer. Does it make sense to three bet in any particular spot? If you're looking at your hands, think to yourself, does it make sense to three bet here? And we laid out the reasons why to maximize value. If it doesn't make sense to three bet, maybe your hand is too good to fold, but not good enough to three bet, then you could go ahead and call. I mean, that kind of helps to make these decisions a bit more automatic to have a real short, sweet process to it. And then I know it happens almost never, especially at my tables. I almost never see anybody three bet unless I'm doing it. But if you happen to be lucky enough, fortunate enough to be at a table where someone three bets, pay attention to that hand. Take note of the situation. Maybe even write it down in your phone as if you were writing a hand history 
for yourself. Because remember, hand histories don't always need to be about us. I've written hand histories and I've shared them in my Slack community that didn't even involve me. I was a spectator. I was taking a hand history against opponent A and opponent B. And I would try to range them. I would try to figure out what they had pre-flop, flop, turn, river. I would go through this exercise and I would try to see how those ranges condensed. What were the stack sizes? What were the relative positions? And then if it happens to go to showdown, maybe they get it all in, you can see what their actual hands were. And then you can reverse engineer the process to see how good your process was. You might have their hand, you might have their exact hand in a range of hands that you've narrowed them to. And that's great. Or you might not have. That could also be great because now you can go back and try to find out where did you make a mistake? It might not even have been a mistake, but you went through the process. And these are the processes we need to go through to become better players on the felt by taking this information off the felt and being comfortable with it so we're no longer afraid. So Dell, do you have anything else to add on this topic? I think we covered three about... I, I don't. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to next week when we do flop bluffing because I feel like this is the first real bluffing that we do in a hand is, is when we get to the flop. So I, I'm looking forward to it. We can start talking about the, the, the construction of a good bluff. Okay, excellent. I'm looking forward to that because I can improve that in my game. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, thanks for joining me, Dell, and I hope you and your wife feel better soon. Thanks a lot, PJ. Always awesome. And until next week, stick to the plan and may all your variants be positive. This has been The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. If you haven't already done so, consider subscribing. And when you're not counting your chips, take a moment to leave the guys a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Get yours.